Good afternoon. I'm here to brief the results of the investigation I directed following the report of civilian casualties from our strike in Kabul on 29 August. Having thoroughly reviewed the findings of the investigation and the supporting analysis by interagency partners, I am now convinced that as many as 10 civilians, including up to seven children, were tragically killed in that strike. Moreover, we now assess that it is unlikely that the vehicle and those who died were associated with ISIS-K or were a direct threat to U.S. forces. I offer my profound condolences to the family and friends of those who were killed. That was the U.S. Central Command's top general, Kenneth McKenzie, last week making one of the most painful mea culpas in the history of the U.S. government's war on terror. A drone strike intended to save the lives of U.S. soldiers had ended up taking the lives of 10 innocent Afghan civilians, seven of them children. It was a rare acknowledgement that a tool the Pentagon and CIA have relied on for years to target terrorists was, in this instance, tragically botched thanks to sketchy intelligence that confused a civilian aid worker with an ISIS suicide bomber. But McKenzie came clean only after reporters on the ground in Kabul exposed the Pentagon's mistake, raising new questions about how many other civilians in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Somalia, in Yemen, have also been killed in U.S. drone strikes. And what does this say about the Biden administration's plans on using over-the-horizon drone strikes to prevent an al-Qaeda resurgence in the country we just abandoned? We'll discuss with Joe Serencioni, a national security and proliferation expert with the Quincy Institute, and we'll also talk to him about the stunning revelations about General Mark Milley's decision to reach out to his Chinese counterpart to prevent a nuclear war in the closing weeks of the Trump administration, all on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States well, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So this uh, drone strike and the acknowledgement that the U.S. government completely screwed this up and killed innocent children, you know, just brings back an issue that we wrote about and talked about for years, especially during the Obama years, when uh, drone strikes really ramped up. And just, you know, a couple of things leap out to me. First, as I mentioned in the uh, introduction there, the Pentagon has gotten praise. I saw a a Democratic congressman, Jason Crow, on MSNBC saying, well, at least the Pentagon came clean. At least they came forward and were transparent about this. Yeah, but they only did so after the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and others documented that the family we killed, who the family we killed in that drone strike were, that it was not an ISIS fighter uh, and his associates, but a uh, an aid worker working for a U.S. NGO and who wanted to come to the United States. That's who we killed those, and it was his children who we killed. 
And, you know, secondly, uh, you know, this uh, over the horizon stuff, if this is the sort of mistakes that can be made and may well have been made quite a bit during the drone wars dating back, you know, nearly two decades now, what does that say about the kind of uh, tactics we're going to be relying on in the coming years uh, for counterterrorism? These kinds of uh, drone strikes that have killed uh, civilians have been going on from the very beginning. And it took years and years and years before pressure began to really build, you know, in this country and, and in the Congress, and frankly, not that much pressure, but enough for the, for the Obama administration to make some adjustments to their program, which were then all mostly rolled back when Trump came in. I remember from, you know, reporting my, my book, Killer Capture, a large part of that book was about uh, the Obama drone operations, that three days after Obama took office, John Brennan, who was then his Homeland Security Advisor, had to walk into the Oval Office and tell him that the very first drone strike that had been launched under his presidency that was supposed to take out uh, these terrorists uh, plotting in South Waziristan along the uh, Pakistan-Afghan border missed its target. In fact, they made a mistake. They thought they were terrorists. It turned out to be a tribal elder and most of his family and small children who were killed. And at that point, Obama said, well, how did this happen? I mean, I was told about the pinpoint accuracy of these drone strikes, and he was not happy about it. But at the end of the day, he made the decision to continue those kinds of strikes. Continue, and not only continue he them. Ra- he ramped he, them up he, 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 he ramped them up. we and, hadn't and, seen and, and, before. And he also learned, uh, he summoned his, uh, the CIA officials to explain to him what had happened. And the deputy CIA director, a guy named Steve Kappas, explained to him that this was a so-called signature strike. They didn't know the identities of the people that they were targeting. They just believed they were terrorists because— They were acting in suspicious ways. Because because they were military-age men who bore certain signatures associated with terrorism. Not only did the program continue, but at that point, Obama had the chance to end signature strikes— but he didn't. That was a red line for the CIA. They wanted to continue them. They continued doing it. And and on your second point, I do think this is a kind of inflection point, the idea that you can continue these kinds of over-the-horizon policies, which isn't entirely drone strikes, but a lot of it would have to be drone strikes. I think that that is going to be extremely difficult to do, absent intelligence on the ground. And given this particular strike, which I think, you know, justifiably has caused an enormous amount of outrage. Yeah, but the thing is, is that America is addicted to drone-based warfare. It is something that, you know, lest we forget, not too long ago, the United States was launching regular drone strikes into Yemen, a country where we had literally no people on the ground, and where the evidence indicates that we killed well into the hundreds of numbers of civilians, 40 to 50 children killed during the course of many of those drone strikes. And we keep doing it over and over and over again. And there's no oversight, there's no accountability, and there's virtually no pressure on the United States government, either the executive or the congressional branch, to stop or... Yeah. I think you put your finger on the issue, which is the lack of oversight and, and, and accountability. Because you can understand 
why this would be an attractive option to a president on a number of levels. You know, Obama was trying to pull our troops out of places like Afghanistan and Iraq and make sure that we didn't end up with troops in places like Yemen and Somalia. And he wanted a a light footprint war on terrorism because, frankly, he wanted to avoid Americans getting killed. At the same time, you know, you're seeing all of this intelligence about gathering threats and terrorism plots, and you remember 9-11, and you remember all of the near misses, and as commander-in-chief, you want to do everything you possibly can to avoid strikes against the homeland. But the problem is it was unfettered. There was not a lot of accountability And other than human rights organizations making hues and cries and the press writing about it, there was very little cost to continue these programs. And so there's an argument to use drones in a kind of limited, very precise surgical way. But clearly, it it was not a program that could be done while avoiding these tragedies, all of these wedding parties, all of these civilians, children who've been killed over over the years. A lot of that could have been avoided. And let's remember that the Pentagon, in all those briefings we were watching in the days after this strike, described it as a righteous strike. They that was Milley. The right that was, that was, that was yeah. General Milley who Milley called it righteous. called it a righteous strike, and Kirby backed him up, and that was based on, you know, what they thought was solid intelligence. Would they have ever changed that? Would they have ever come clean if it hadn't been for the reporting on the ground that exposed those claims as being false. And I think, you know, the to ask the question, you know, is to get, is to get the answer, which is probably not, because the only time they've ever come clean on particular strikes, in my experience, is when there's proof on the ground. I remember when I was back at NBC, I had a video of one of those strikes on a market in Yemen, and it was only, we had the video and we show we presented the the video to the Pentagon and the White House and then they said okay we're now investigating that one which they had never said before about particular strikes um, but it at least got them to say to open up a little bit the other thing that i think is important about this and this is you know the politics of it all remember jen saki uh, a few weeks ago before all this happened was uh, at the at the podium talking about how can you describe our evacuation as anything other than a success i think those were those were her exact words because they were playing up how many people the over 100,000 they got out It's going to be really tough to sell what they did in the evacuation as a success when 13 U.S. soldiers die in an ISIS attack, and then um, a few days later, we. I mean, I think you could describe the the the, you know the 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 actual operation. You've got to parse it Uh, pretty. Yeah, to 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 get 124,000 people out of there very quickly. That was an extraordinary success, but the backdrop of it was a was a massive policy failure. Well, the price of that success was awfully high. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I, I don't think it's a success they're going to want to tout in campaign ads, shall we say. Um, um, you, when you mentioned Millie, uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Millie revelations in the Woodward book, which are pretty interesting. Uh, he's going to have to testify, I believe, September 28th before Armed Services, and there's going to be a lot of questions about what he was doing during those final weeks of the um, Trump administration, these phone calls to the Chinese 
top military commander and his own meetings in which he was telling senior Pentagon staff that nothing gets done in terms of initiating a nuclear war without going through him in the chain of command, as we'll hear from our from our guest, Joe uh, Serencioni. Uh, he's not in the chain of command uh, for a nuclear strike, which raises you know all sorts of questions on its own, like just what is that chain of command? It also raises the, the incredibly difficult question of like, if, if you were in Millie's position, what would you have done, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, seriously, it, it, it may kind of cause everyone a little bit of momentary pause at a, a military official kind of so inserting himself above civilian control of the military. Yet on the other hand, the alternative is uh, a thousand times worse. He could have resigned and, and gone public with his concerns. Right. And that would have at least put a spotlight on um, what the procedures were going to be and who was going to be. Or he uh, could have done what he ultimately did and then resign. And he, and he didn't do that. So it's an, those are interesting questions. Maybe they'll come up in his confirmation. Yeah. Uh, maybe they'll come up in uh, in his congressional uh, testimony. One thing I will say is that I don't know whether he'll ever write a book. I don't know if uh, there's a precedent for former chairmen of the Joint Chiefs to write these kinds of uh, books about their experiences in the government. Well, if there's a guy named Colin Powell. Yeah, I was just saying. Good yeah. point, yes. <laughs> but he also happened to have been Secretary of State. <laughs> he had more to pad out his military years with... Uh... But, I mean, if you think about General Milley's uh, journey uh, in the last couple of years of the Trump administration from accompanying uh, Donald Trump to the uh, church across the street from the White House when and clearing out all of those uh, protesters to trying to subvert his commander in chief from, you know, potentially going to war against China. It's quite it's quite a journey for him. And I think he'll have a pretty uh, compelling story to tell. It'll make a great movie. In any case, we've got a uh, excellent guest to talk about all this, Joe Serencioni, former Hill staffer, um, the same profession as uh, Victoria for many years. And if you want to call on... that a profession. Yes, we call, we call <laughs> yeah. ourselves Hill Rats. Hill know. Rats, <laughs> yes. Uh, a fellow yeah. Hill Rat who, spent, who <laughs> helped write some of the military rules on uh, on nuclear command and is, uh, is a recognized expert on the subject. So let's get to it. Okay, we are now joined by Joe Serencioni, a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute and a recognized expert in nuclear command authority and how we can and how we legally are supposed to start a nuclear war if we are going to have one. Joe, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Mike. A pleasure to be on with you. We want to talk to you about the revelations in the Woodward book about General Milley and his uh, reaching out to the Chi his Chinese counterpart. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about this really amazing admission by the Pentagon, General McKenzie, on Friday uh, that the uh, U.S. drone strike in Kabul on August 29th, killed 10 innocent civilians, including seven children. You tweeted about this the other day. We must use this tragedy to dramatically reduce and reform the use of armed drones. I have heard talk along those lines for many, many years, and various steps, reforms have been made, and yet a tragedy like this, a shocking tragedy like this, still occurs. Why 
did it occur and what, if anything, can be done to prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future? Sure. First, let's get rid of the myth that this tragedy occurred because it was over the horizon, that somehow it was the lack of intelligence on the ground that caused this tragedy. We have had 20 years of innocents being killed by drones when people have been present in the battle space, when people have been near the battle space, lots of ground intelligence. Other experts know better than I, we've been killing people by the dozens in Afghanistan bombing strikes ever since the beginning of the war, wedding parties, funerals, civilian houses. Just in 2020, a recent study showed that there were over 100 Afghan civilians killed in drone strikes. So it wasn't that the operators weren't close enough to the battle that did it. It's the nature of drone warfare that does this and the the limitations on any kind of intelligence, I, I think, that, that does this, complicated by the heat of the moment. You know, and, and I, I sympathize with the operators who were desperate to avoid any repeat strikes, but they clearly made these kinds of mistakes. And it should be a warning about the use of drones. Michael, maybe you were at the Aspen Strategy Forum 10 years ago this summer. 10 years ago, I was there in Aspen and I heard Dennis Blair, the former director of national intelligence, say then that we should stop drone strikes in Pakistan because we were creating more terrorists than we were killing. I, I remember I, that I was there well. too. Yep, yeah. I remember that. Right? That was 10 years ago. And it was shocking that a man, you know, this is, he's no pacifist. He was the former head of the Pacific Command, the former head of direct, director of national intelligence. And he's saying, stop doing this. It doesn't work. We have other ways to get to target and to kill our enemies. And there's just too many civilian casualties to justify this. Can we just follow up on that, Joe? Because the other ways, uh, the alternatives, I think, bears exploring a little bit. Because I think that when you are commander in chief, you're president of the United States, you see all of this intelligence that suggests that American service members are there's a terrorist plot, and they it's you know an attack against American service members is imminent especially when, in this particular case, uh, 13 service members had just been killed in a previous uh, ISIS uh, attack, the use of drones is extremely seductive. Yes. And if you put yourself in the commander-in-chief's shoes, I guess you can understand why this would be such an appealing option. So then the question is, if you're president, what do you do in a situation where there is uh, such a strong feeling uh, and intelligence that there is something afoot, something imminent. What do you do? Well, what are the options? Well, one thing is you could make it a much more rare occurrence that this is a selected instrument, not the the first instrument. The second thing you can do is what they've just done, which is elevate the uh, uh, release authority. So it's no longer the, co- the commander on the field. You now have to get Washington's approval before you launch a drone strike. You know, and so and and the, the third thing you can do is just instill in your drone operators a much higher level of certainty before they they make the strike. I mean, I was struck. I don't know if you ever saw this eye in the sky movie Helen Mirren played a British commander and the, and explored the the morality of of drone strikes of for example killing a known terrorist target if there was a child in the house would you still do it and it's it's those kinds of issues that we have to explore much more I think I'm not saying get rid of it I'd be much more selective in its use and you raise a, a really 
important and interesting question, which is whether President Biden actually authorized this strike. And it sounds like uh, he did not. Oh, he did not. Uh, no, there's but, no question. There was Washington was not involved in this decision. And it's worth noting that all during the Obama administration, there may have been exceptions, but when it came to the military's use of drone strikes, not the CIA, but the military, those strikes were all authorized by President Obama after a long and very elaborate vetting process that uh, was controversial among some people. Well, yes, that's exactly right. But you can see there was an option, for example, in the, in the capture or killing of Osama bin Laden to use drones. And they decided there were just too many civilians to justify that. So they took the riskier option to U.S. personnel of sending in a SEAL team. That's the kind of decision we need to make more of, frankly. Let me uh, just uh, take you back to you. You started out by saying you wanted to you know, dispel the myth that this raised questions about over the horizon counterterrorism operations. I'm not quite sure I understand your logic there, because, I mean, whether or not this qualifies, certainly over the horizon are operations, including drone strikes, in which we do not have boots on the ground. We do not have intel assets on the ground. So it would seem logically that the risk of horrible tragedies like this are only going to increase as the Biden administration ramps up what it calls over the horizon operations in the region. Although the hard data is hard to come by on this, I would say that a review of the casualties we've killed by drone strikes doesn't show a correlation between local intelligence and accuracy. I mean, all things being equal, you would prefer local intelligence. You you would. Rather than relying on, you know, satellite imagery. That's exactly what got us wrong. Yes, but but for example, some of the civilian casualties have have been caused by faulty intelligence provided to us by some of our allies. So, for example, warlords with a grudge against another warlord say, well, that's an ISIS. He's Al Qaeda. The drones come in, their rivals taken out and along with their families. So that's what I mean by the the intelligence problem you have here. It's not just local versus remote. It's the quality of the intelligence itself and uh, being close to the battle does not appear to have resulted in fewer civilian casualties from drones. Right. To me, it seems that what what should be done is, and I think Obama got close to doing this, but in the end didn't, is to ban these so-called signature strikes, right? This idea that- That's exactly what this was. And that's what this was, right? The, The idea that we don't know the identity of the people we are targeting. All we know is that they bear certain signatures, to use the term of art, associated with terrorism. Like it's a group of military-aged men who drive a certain kind of Toyota pickup truck and who go to a some kind of a compound that looks to be perhaps where terrorists congregate. And the idea, they, the other term that they sometimes use for these signature strikes is crowd killing. And it's this idea that that you don't actually need to know the identity of these people if you establish their patterns of behavior. And that seems like a recipe for, well, what happened uh, just the other day. Yes. So you can see we have to make a distinction between the precision of our weaponry and the accuracy of our intelligence. You know, we can deliver a, a weapon from hundreds of miles away onto a car. 
you know, onto the doorway of a house. We can do that. It's remarkable. But that doesn't mean it's the right car or the right doorway. I'm wondering if there are any legal consequences for these failed drone strikes. One of the more macabre outcroppings of this latest incident is the family asking for compensation for the killings. And there's been actually a long history of the U.S. Army paying uh, this, you know, the families of the civilians who've been killed. It's it's macabre. Does it have any impact whatsoever in terms of the way we operate the drone program? I think that is the responsible thing to do. The same way in a case of um, a wrongful death and in, in domestic police, the families often are asking for and get compensation. Uh, so I think that's re- reasonable. The bigger issue, I think, is um, whether anybody in the chain of command pays a price for this. Does anybody lose their job? Does anybody lose their post? And I'm not aware of anyone in the entire 20 years of the drone wars in in that region of the world who has suffered professionally for killing civilians. That's a pretty uh, significant statement right there. And my guess is that in other other countries and other military traditions, people do lose their jobs and are held accountable for those kinds of mistakes. Now, you heard it in the press conference when the, the CENTCOM commander was announcing this. They asked, is anyone going to be held responsible? And they said, well, the investigation is continuing. I read that as a way of just stretching out the conversation until people forget about it. It's something people are talking about and haven't forgotten about right now is uh, the revelations in Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book about General Milley and his efforts to reach out to the uh, his Chinese counterpart to reassure him that there wasn't going to be a nuclear war in those chaotic closing weeks of the Trump administration. Now, you in a um, in an interview with my friend and co-author David Korn the other day said Milley did break protocol, did break procedure here, but that the overall system we have in place for who gets to launch a nuclear war and what the procedures are, I think the word you used was insane. So Mm. tell us what you think Milley did wrong here and what he should have done. In in this case, the the mental instability of the president of the United States has, has exposed the insanity of the nuclear command and control process. And Milley was caught in this insanity. He, Milley was caught in a nuclear catch-22. He is not actually in the chain of command for what they call release authority, release procedures. The, he doesn't play a role in the decision to launch a nuclear weapon. So as he tries to insert himself in that role, he is exceeding his constitutional authority. But you can see the choice he had. Does he follow the rules and allow a madman to possibly destroy the world, or does he intervene and in so doing violate his constitutional authority and his oath of office? I think he's trying to thread the needle. And from the way I read it, he he probably succeeded in threading that needle by reminding the National Military Command Center officers, those are the people he called in, to of the procedures and saying that he was part of those procedures And that is true. He is part of the consultative process. He can be brought in to consult on the decision to launch, but he's not part of the launch 
process. So the president doesn't need to go through the secretary of defense, the chairman of the joint chiefs, or anybody else to launch nuclear weapons. Let's drill in on that. Who is the highest ranking person aside from the president who is involved or engaged in that decision? There's two processes. If the military calls the president, then you know the military gets a notice of a warning of attack, and this is the one that people are most familiar with, then there will be a conference called that could include the Secretary of Defense, that would include the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and then you'd bring the president online and be a conference. But if the president calls the military, it is, in other, in other words, the scenario that Milley feared, there are very few people involved. All the president has to do is open up the binder in the nuclear football that accompanies, accompanies him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He call, the, calls the military command center and he talks to the officer on the other side of the uh, phone. That is often a one-star general. It could be a colonel, but it's often a one-star. And that is the person that all that person does is verify that this is in fact the president of the United States talking. He gives him a challenge code. The president reads back the correct code on a card that he carries with him in his pocket all the time. And then the order is implemented. The, the military command center then calls the STRATCOM and they relay the office, the orders to the military officers and the submarines and missiles and the missiles are flying. And this procedure is designed to take as few as four minutes, four to five minutes. So short version, the president plus a colonel. Could launch the president plus a low-ranking so, officer so, could launch all our nuclear missiles. That is correct. I want to back up and and I want to understand how we how this process got put in place, uh, where the president and a colonel could essentially, you know, blow up uh, the world. You know, the world. But but before that, just one one question. One thing I, I've never quite understood. Why is uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who is the top military officer in the country, not in the chain of command? I know he's the top advisor to the pre- military advisor to the president as well, but why why not place him or her in in the chain of command? Ah. Well, this goes back to the Goldwater Nichols Act of 1986, and I was actually on the Armed Services staff. A committee staff and helped um, uh, with that bill. And this was the big reform that we did then to separate out the two functions th- that we have in our government. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the chiefs of staff of the services are tasked with training, equipping, equipping and organizing our services. So that's what they do. Train, equip, organize. They don't actually control the military forces. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs does not order anybody to do anything in terms of combat. That's just left up to the combatant commanders? Exactly. And this was a reform designed to prevent some of the mishaps we had, for example, during the Iran hostage crisis or the invasion of Grenada, where the forces couldn't talk to each other, the helicopters weren't using the same fuel that each other was was doing. And they, they organized the military services under what they call combatant commanders. And so they gave the, the general in charge of Central Command, for example, the authority to direct all the services under one unified command. That was a good reform and it's worked well. And one of the things this did was clarify that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is an advisor to the president, an advisor to the Secretary of Defense and the National Security Council, but not a commander of the forces. That function is reserved for the combat commanders who report directly to the Secretary of Defense. It was a way of shoring up coherent civilian control of the military uh, forces. 
If I can put a, an even finer point on that, though, because I think a lot of presidents might argue that the Constitution delegates to them the power to be the commander in chief of the military and any kind of congressional enactment that attempts to say sort of this it tramples upon the president's power as commander in chief. So, you know, like a President Trump might say it's entirely up to him to decide how the military is organized. And he's just complying with this act because he's being, you know, kind of accommodating to Congress. Well, no, <laughs> you know, we have some a of them would say it, though, wouldn't they? <laughs> we have a Congress. We pass laws. We clarify what the procedures are. So the, the combatant commanders report to the secretary of defense who reports to the president. Great. It didn't used to be that way before 1986. That's the way it is now by law and then by regulation. And the president is also governed by those laws. All right. So what should be done about what you've described as oh. an insane set of procedures? Well, in com compared to the clarity of the Goldwater-Nichols Act over things like, say, conducting a war in Afghanistan or Iraq and how that's going to be organized, our, our nuclear processes are way out of date. And they were formed during the darkest days of the Cold War when you were worried about a surprise Soviet attack. So that it was designed to be quick, rapid, decisive, so that under attack, the president could quickly order the launch of uh, our nuclear missiles, which presumably would be the, the targets of this attack. And you had to have that go very quickly. So you streamlined it, you stripped people out of the process, you made it go as quickly as possible to insane levels, as I say, of a decision to launch being made in a consultation of maybe seven minutes and then implemented in a process of maybe four to five minutes. Well, why do that? Why have that? One of the quickest ways to avoid the problem that Millie was in is take away from the president the ability to unilaterally launch nuclear weapons. You no longer need to do that. We're not worried about a surprise attack. Put somebody else in the loop. So require that at the very top of the chain of command, you need two people, let's say the Secretary of Defense. Some people have suggested the Speaker of the House. So you need at least two people to authorize a strike. The, the way, are, for example, on our subs and our missile silos, you need two officers to turn the keys. Let's carry that procedure all the way up. The other possibility is what um, Adam Smith, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, and Senator Elizabeth Warren have suggested, which is declare no first use, that it shall be the policy of the United States never to launch a nuclear war. We won't be the first to use these nuclear weapons. In that case, if a president tried to do that, it would be an illegal order, and the military is obligated not to obey that order. There's legislation on both these ideas floating around Congress. It's all a question of whether we have the political will to change a process that's dangerous and outdated. Well, I'd like to ask Victoria, I mean, it's fascinating, the idea of the Speaker of the House being in the chain of command, but wouldn't that be a violation of uh, the separation of powers to have Congress involved in a strike decision? Isn't that an amazing question? That, that uh, I mean, and 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 one for the Supreme Court, I imagine. Well, you see, this gets to the who gets the authority to declare war. The Constitution gives the Congress and the Congress alone the authority to declare war. In some ways, our nuclear launch procedures circumvent that. We abandoned that year, decades ago, right? We don't declare wars anymore as a practical matter. As Well, you know, you launching a nuclear weapon is a pretty good declaration of war. And shouldn't the Congress have a role in that, the ultimate war decision? Well, so is invading other countries, which we've done without declaring war, you know, pretty consistently over the years. 
Yeah. That does raise the kind of the critical question. Does Congress have the capacity either in the speaker herself or kind of more generally, does Congress have the capacity to actually be engaged in these sort of decisions? Well, that is a very good question. And a lot of people are opposed to including the speaker or the Congress in there because they're not versed in launch procedures and and military doctrine and nuclear war doctrine. So they they wouldn't be familiar with the, the case for using nuclear weapons. But in some ways, that's exactly why you want to include them, because you don't want this whole decision siloed in, uh, among people who are inclined to use the weapons, who, who for them, these are the hammers they have and they want to use them. You want to have diversity of opinion. You want to have different points of view in something so fundamental as starting a nuclear war. What do you make of Millie's conduct not just on this, but, you know, throughout those last months of the Trump administration, where he was clearly trying to assert himself as a guardrail on an unstable president and taking actions that, you know, deviated from the wishes of his commander in chief. I do not think this was a Bonaparte moment. He was not trying to assert military authority over a civilian government, you know, or or a, 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 a cue, a crew grandeur to himself. He's not Burt I, Lancaster in seven days in May. Oh, I am so glad you brought that up because that is the. <laughs> That is the movie on the subject. Burt right. Lancaster is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, organizes the coup against the president of the United States. Why? Absolutely. Because he's concluding an arms control agreement with the Soviet Union, and he thinks that's right. treason. And Kirk Douglas stops him. But so he's not, he's not Burt Lancaster. But what he was, he found himself in a situation as really the last remaining guardrail against what he thought correctly was an insane president, a mad president. And you've got to realize... You know, uh, Woodward, I mean, um, yeah, Bob Woodward brings up this. He was going to pull a Schlesinger. That's the way he refers to it, which is the very last time we were confronted with this situation. Back during the Watergate scandals, Richard Nixon was so upset about the, the impeachment process that he told supporters in, in the White House, he says, you know who I am? I can I can walk into my office, pick up the phone, and in 25 minutes, 70 million people would be dead. And he was right. That is exactly what he could do and what Trump could do. But then we had Henry Kissinger, we had Schlesinger, we had Al Haig, all of whom intervened in one way or another. And anecdotally, Schlesinger says he told the military staff in the White House, if Nixon gives you an order, check with me first. Similar to this Milley moment, unconstitutional, improper. He was not in the chain of command. He shouldn't have done it, but it's good that we that he did do it. Where was the Schlesinger in this? In, in Trump's in this case, situation? we had Mark Meadows and Cash Patel at the Pentagon. And Secretary yeah. Esper. Yeah. Well, no, well, it wasn't. I, it was Chris Miller by this yeah, time. Yeah, Esper was gone. Who He'd are already these been people? fired. Yeah, right. Yeah, who's going to stand up to him? So he was the last guardrail standing. It is a kind of a form of civil disobedience or I guess military disobedience. But I guess one question is, is there a, a slippery slope toward military undermining of civilian control of the military? And, you know, for the pe people who, you know, called for Milley to resign, do you see any valid uh, argument for him resigning given that potential uh, danger? I, I understand the concern and it's real. You don't want a military officer 
intervening, inserting himself into uh, command procedures that then would subvert civilian control of the military. That is absolutely true. And under most circumstances, you don't want that. I would say this is one of the circumstances where you do. We're faced with the choice, you know, risk nuclear war, either a war with China that could escalate to a nuclear war or the direct launch of nuclear weapons, that he made the, the right decision. And if we don't like that, if we don't like that choice, then the answer isn't to force Miller to resign. It's to change the procedures that put him in that impossible situation in the first place. It's long overdue. People have been calling for this for decades. Congress has shirked its responsibility in, in this area. This is something that Joe Biden could fix overnight. He has the authority to change these procedures. He could do it in his nuclear posture review. He can just do it. He could say, henceforth, the, the, I declare that U.S. policy is not to use nuclear weapons first. So you don't have to worry about any president from now on ordering a nuclear strike out of the blue. It is not going to happen. But could he unilaterally change the, the chain of command, i.e. put in someone else? No. No, that would require legislation, that you would, you would require legislation to mandate legislatively by statute, by law, that, for example, the Secretary of Defense is required to sign off on a nuclear strike order or the Speaker of the House or whoever you choose. You, you, or you could make a committee. It doesn't matter. You could do that by law. You could do the first, prevent a, a president. But the problem, Joe, is President Biden could say it, and then there'll be another president uh, who president might Donald say Trump something Jr. different, right? Yeah. Well, yes, these are the president's weapons, and nuclear policy changes president yeah. by president. That's right. But once you establish a precedent like this, it is it is difficult, not impossible, but difficult to go back on it, and it requires the, the president to take action on it. So you'd... I would also point out that the Israelis, while never publicly admitting they have nuclear weapons, always say, well, we will not be the first to use military weapons and, and nuclear weapons, I'm sorry, in the in the Mideast. And I don't know how many of their adversaries in Tehran or elsewhere are reassured by that. But in any case, well, there's two questions, whether whether this is actually a stabilizing a factor in military conflicts, whether your adversary believes you won't use them. But the question we're dealing with right now is the insane president problem. I don't think Trump is going to be the last president like this. Who's so, insane? <laughs> well, we've just had two in our lifetimes. I mean, right. Richard Nixon, that's right. And now yeah. Donald Trump for those last months in office and Donald Trump for his entire tenure in office. So if this happens to you twice in your lifetime, isn't it crazy not to take action, not to try to avoid this procedure while you have the chance? It sounds like the only real solution is to have a psychiatric evaluation for every uh, incoming <laughs> every president. Every candidate. Every candidate. <laughs> every candidate. But anyway, uh, Joe, I want to thank you for your insights. You are one of the true experts on the subject, and uh, we appreciate the chance to talk to you about it. It was a real pleasure talking to all three of you. Mm -hmm.